so if you would um, grab your Bibles and open up to the book of Ruth, chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 5 from Ruth 1. And once you're there, if you would, um, as we do at Apostles, please stand uh, for the reading of God's word. This is Ruth 1, 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and re remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Please pray with me. Father, we are grateful this morning that we can gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, Lord, also to be able to gather together with visitors this morning who are joining with us in the worship of you. And Lord, we celebrate who you are. We celebrate and worship and honor and praise you for what you've done for us through Christ. And Lord, we pray today that through the songs that are being sung and the scriptures that are being read and the prayers that are being offered and even the words of encouragement between one another, and certainly through the teaching of your word that, Lord, you would remind us once again of this great story, the greatest story, a story that is large enough to encompass the entire universe and yet personal, personal enough to impact every single one of our lives, the story of the gospel. Lord, we pray that that, that message, that truth, that meta-narrative of our life would be driven deeper into our hearts and our souls this morning. And that, God, you'd continue to stir up and cultivate and deepen our faith in Jesus and his life, his death, his resurrection, and his imminent return where he makes all things new. Lord, thank you for your word. We know the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And so, Lord, as we turn our attention to this ancient text, the book of Ruth, we pray that your word would once again sound forth, speak to us, and minister to us, and Continue the great work of transforming us into the image of Christ. We ask this now in his name. Amen. Amen. Hey, family, I hope you had a great week. You can go ahead and grab a seat. So Ruth chapter 1, 1 through 5, this opening paragraph here. And in it, we are presented with this woman, Naomi, who felt abandoned by God. See, Naomi had grown up surrounded by the people of God. She had grown up in the promised land. She had grown up uh, learning and listening and hearing about the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God and the promises of God. She'd heard all of that from her youth. And yet, as we are introduced to this woman in Ruth chapter one, from her perspective, God was not there for her. 
I wonder if anyone this morning can relate to Naomi. Maybe you yourself have felt abandoned by God. Perhaps that describes you even today. That's how you feel. Maybe you look at your life and things have fallen apart all around you and it's caused you to sit back and wonder, where is God in all of this? Does he not care? Is he not for me? Where is he in the midst of my pain? Well, this is Naomi, this precious daughter of Israel here in the book of Ruth. And these introductory verses to this book show us how everything fell apart for her, how everything began to unravel. But then the rest of the story tells us of a God who works mysteriously in the lives of his people to rescue them and redeem them and provide for them and do more for them than they could ever ask or think. I love this book. Naomi is going to come to grasp at a very personal level the words of Isaiah, the great prophet in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. She's going to get that. She's going to grasp that. But here in these opening verses, she's not there yet. Verse 1 gives us, of course, the context to the book of Ruth. Uh, The reason why Ruth comes after the book of Judges in our Bibles is because the events of Ruth took place, notice in verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled. In the days when the judges ruled. Now there was a period in the history of Israel, this nation, where they were ruled by judges. They didn't have a king. They didn't have kind of a A-type personality or leader who was leading the people like Moses or Joshua. And they were ruled by judges. This time frame was approximately from 1200 to about 1020 BC, about a 200-year span. Put differently, the time of the judges was the time between when Joshua led the people of God. Remember Joshua, he was Moses' successor. He was the one who led God's people into the promised land and drove out some of their enemies and really established God's people in the promised land. Well, after he died, the time of the judges begins And it closes with the ascension of King Saul, the first monarch, the first king of Israel. That period is the time of the judges. And that is when the story of Ruth is taking place. Now, if you know anything about the book of Judges, you know that that was a time of spiritual and moral decline in Israel. In fact, if you read the book of Judges, you start to notice that there's this cycle that's going on. It's just a cycle that's on repeat and you catch on to it after a handful of chapters. It's sort of like if you've had a song on repeat on your phone and you start trying to play music and you're driving. My wife and I do this sometimes because we always have things on repeat for our children. We'll get in the car and we'll start a song and we think we're going to listen to a whole album or a whole playlist and we start driving and it takes like 20 to 25 minutes until one of us goes, have we heard this song already? Because it's just on repeat and we catch it after the fourth or fifth time. Well, if you read Judges, that's what happens. You read this story and and then you're like, this kind of sounds like that again, but just different characters. And then it happens again. And the cycle that's on repeat in the book of Judges goes like this. God's people begin to drift. They, They begin to drift away from the Lord. They begin to just do their own thing. And so God, because he loves his people, says, not on my watch. He sends judgment on his people. Uh, 
once that judgment hits, God's people come to their senses. They cry out to God in repentance and God says, no. Okay, that's not how the story goes. God, in his grace and mercy, raises up a deliverer called a judge. This person drives out the enemies and brings peace and prosperity for a generation to God's people and then repeat. The people forget and they abandon God and they go out and God judges them and the cycle keeps going through the book of Judges. And the final line in the book of Judges is descriptive of the book and the times. This is Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And everyone thinks that moral relativism is so 21st century. This was going on 3,000 years ago. What's true for me, what's right for me is what I'm going to do. There's no standard outside of me. Everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. So that is the historical context. The book of Ruth takes place during the days of the judges. But there's also a theological context. And it's marked here for us in verse 1 by this phrase. There was a famine in the land. Do you see that in verse 1? There was a famine in the land. Now, why do I say that this, uh, this verse, or this expression rather, reveals the theological context? Well, the answer is this. If you look at the law of Moses, within the law of Moses, God promises his people, his covenant people, that so long as they trust him, so long as they obey him, he is going to bless them like crazy. But he also warns them that if they turn away from him and they begin to trust in false gods and idols and disobey him, that he is going to bring curses upon them and he's going to judge them. Now, these curses include enemy invasion, which you see that all over the book of Judges. He just brings all these pagan neighbors in just to conquer them. So there's enemy invasion. But another one of the curses is that God will send famines on the land. Let me give you an example. This is Leviticus 26, starting in verse 14. God says, but if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, he's going to rattle off a bunch of curses. Let me drop down to verse 19. He says, I will break the pride of your power and I will make your heavens like iron, no water coming down, and your earth like bronze, no crops coming up. Verse 20, and your strength shall be spent in vain for your land shall not yield its increase and the tr trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. So God says, look, if you're gonna rebel against me, I'm gonna shut up the rains. And there's going to be famine in the land. You could also see Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 through 24 is another example of this same curse. So what we've learned so far is that this story, the story of Ruth, is set in the days of the judges when God's people were actually living in disobedience. And that God's judgment is on the promised land right now, the land that was supposed to be flowing with milk and honey. And now there's famine. The irony of the situation is clear from the name of the city that these Israelites live in. Bethlehem literally means house of bread. And yet there's no bread for this Israelite family. So what should they and the rest of the people of Israel have done? What should they have done when God's judgment was on the land? When there was no food even in the house of bread? What should they have done? Well, they could have looked to the scriptures and found an answer. In Deuteronomy 30, God tells them, 
starting in verse 1, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Dropping down to verse 9. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. So what should they have done in this perilous time? They should have turned to the Lord in repentance and faith and depended on the Lord to provide for them. But that's not what Elimelech did. Rather than returning to the Lord and finding provision from him, we read in verse 1 that he took his family to sojourn in the country of Moab. Now Moab at this time was just across the Dead Sea um, from Bethlehem. So Bethlehem was on the western side of the Dead Sea. The region of Moab was on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. They were very close. This means that the famine was local to Israel, which is further evidence that this was a judgment of God specifically on Israel and not a regional famine that just took over the whole Middle East. The Moabites, the people of Moab, were historically enemies of Israel. In fact, even in the times of Judges, you'll read in the book of Judges about uh, one of the kings of Moab coming in and invading. These were enemies of God's people. Now, we don't know if Elimelech's family bore any personal responsibility for the judgment of God on Israel. But we do know that Elimelech went to look for provision in Moab rather than the Lord. Do not miss the significance of what's going on here. Rather than calling on the people of God to repent before the Lord, Elimelech decides that if God will not provide what he needs, then he'll look elsewhere for it. And this is a temptation that we can all face from time to time. Family, haven't you also had times in your life or seasons in your life where God didn't provide what you wanted, when you wanted it, in exactly the way that you wanted it, and haven't you been tempted to take matters into your own hands? Especially if, As far as you can tell, God's withholding of that thing in your life is not related to your own sin. Have you ever been in a place like that in your life where you're just going, well, why wouldn't God do this thing for me? Perhaps you've waited and waited and waited and prayed and prayed and prayed for a godly spouse. Lord, give me that man of faith, that man who loves your word. Maybe he even serves in ministry. 6-2 also, please, Lord, 6-2. Okay, not, it doesn't have to be 6'2", Lord, but definitely taller than me, right, ladies? Lord, just give me this man, and, and you're patiently waiting, and you're looking for that spouse, and, and yet God doesn't provide it. And there's a temptation that's born in a place like that, a temptation to get frustrated and, and embittered toward God and to say, you know what, forget this. If God's not going to give me the thing that I desire, I'm going to take matters into my own hands and I'm going to go do it my own way. And there's a temptation to perhaps compromise or lower your standards. 
Or maybe you're already married. And you've been praying for years and years for your spouse to change. And nothing seems to be happening. And you're saying, Lord, change this thing in him or change this thing in her. And nothing is happening. And all of a sudden, there's this temptation again to become frustrated and a temptation to throw in the towel. So maybe, maybe God's not with me. Maybe God's not for me. Maybe God isn't giving you the version of success that you envision and you're growing frustrated with him. I'm done waiting on him. I'm not gonna sit here serving him if he's going to withhold from me. Maybe you've been praying for healing for yourself or maybe a loved one for many, many years. The same prayer on repeat. Lord, would you take this thing away? And it seems as if the heavens are shut up like bronze. There's no deliverance. There's no healing. Listen, if you're feeling this way, let me remind you of the words of the psalmist in Psalm 8411. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. Listen, please listen. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So if there is something that you feel you really want, you really need in your life and God is not giving it to you, then family, on the authority of God's word, I can tell you this morning that that thing that you think is so good for you is not ultimately best for you. So take heart and trust the Lord. Let's see in our story how these things worked out for this man, Elimelech. Now there's an indication that this time in Moab was always just a temporary plan, right? It says there that Elimelech went to sojourn there, to sojourn there. They had always planned to come back to Israel, but Elimelech never made it back. This man went to Moab with the intentions of sojourning there and getting the provision that he needed for that season in his life. And he'd go back to Israel at some future point and then he dies in Moab. Now we have no way of knowing with any degree of certainty about Elimelech's spiritual state. And we certainly know nothing about his eternal destiny. But his death in Moab should certainly serve as a metaphorical warning to all of us. I titled the sermon this morning, Hungry in the House of Bread. Hungry in the House of Bread. And you know, there are many who have grown up in the church. You've grown up in the house of bread, so to speak. You've grown up in the place where God's promises and God's blessings are found within the family of God. And although that's true, you find yourself looking out at the world as if that is better. Looking out at the world saying to yourself, I think the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. I think the fields are fuller in Moab. And there's a temptation just like the prodigal son to say, yeah, I, I know what it's like in my father's house and sure my needs are met, but it sure looks fun out there. It looks awesome out there. The thing that I'm, I'm really needing, the thing that I'm really desiring, the satisfaction that I just don't have yet, it's, it's, it's out there. It's in Moab. I can find it. I can figure this out for myself. And there's this temptation. And sometimes for those of us who have been raised in the church, we even say to ourselves, I'm just going to do this for a season. And then I'm going to come back to my father's house. And if, you, if you're feeling that, 
I especially want to talk to the young people. If you're sensing that or you're feeling that in your heart, that is the devil talking. That is not coming from the spirit of the Lord. And you need to reject those thoughts. And you need to understand this morning and every morning of your life that there is always bread to be found in the house of the Lord. That you need to realize that the God of Bethlehem is a God who provides for his people. The words of the psalmist are true. Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. There's nowhere else you can turn. Like the disciples of Jesus, when Jesus said, do you want to go away? The disciples said, where would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Family, God always, always provides for his own. We're going to see that in this story. It's just that so often the way that God does it is not the way we would expect. But it always exceeds our expectations. I love it. So let's continue in the story. Elimelech dies. Notice in verse three, a shift is going to take place. It says, so she set out. Oh, sorry, I'm in chapter two now. I'm getting way ahead of myself. Verse three, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi died and she was left with her two sons. In verse two, Naomi was the wife of Elimelech. But now notice in verse three, Elimelech is referred to as the husband of Naomi. From this point on now, Naomi is taking center stage in the narrative. She becomes the focal point. And now that she is front and center, the question for the readers becomes this. Will God take care of this daughter of Israel who is in such a vulnerable state? Now, what's so interesting to me is that we have no way of knowing how Naomi felt about the decision to go to Moab. I mean, was she like Eve in the garden where she essentially like led the charge? Hey, honey, look at this fruit. You want some? Was she the one saying, let's go to Moab and kind of spearheading the charge? Or was Naomi maybe the voice of reason, as wives so often are, saying to Elimelech, uh, honey, I don't know if that's such a good idea. Maybe we should just stay here. And then Elimelech going, no, 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 trust me, babe. It's going to be awesome in Moab. Everything's going to work out great for us. You ever been there, guys? Brothers, don't leave me hanging. You never been in that spot? No, 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 honey, this is going to be amazing. Let's do it this way. It's like when I told my wife we should camp in a tent in the desert and uh, everything would be awesome. And it dropped down in the 20s that night and we were freezing and had no heat. And we've never gone camping in a tent like that again. It's just crazy how that works out. I love that line. No, 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 honey, trust me, it's gonna be great. We, we just don't know. We don't know how the conversation went down. But now here's what we do now. Here is this woman, Naomi. She's in this foreign land in Moab and she's got no husband and she has two youngish sons to care for. We don't know their age at this point, probably teenagers, maybe around 20. And the question again is this, will God take care of her? Look again at verse four. Verse four says, these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. Will God take care of her? The answer is a resounding yes, but he's not going to do it in the way she expected. Her two sons take Moabite wives. 
Now, this is the second really bad decision that this family has made in just four verses. God had commanded his people not to intermingle in marriage with the surrounding nations. And the reason was really, really simple. It was because it would be very easy for them, just like even King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, to be swayed by these pagan wives and to begin to actually worship their false gods. And so God had commanded his people, do not intermingle in marriage with these other nations. Now, did Naomi bless these unions? Or did the boys, much like Samson in the book of Judges, demand that she let them do what they wanted to do? Again, we just don't know. But either way, the fact that Malon and Kilion took wives for themselves made it all but certain that Naomi's family line would be secure and that this woman would be provided for for the rest of her life. But then things went from bad to worse. First, both marriages failed to produce offspring. For upwards of 10 years, both of these sons and their wives were unable to have any children. And then not one, but both of her sons died. We read in verse 5, And both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Let's pause just for a moment and just try to feel what Naomi might have been feeling. To lose your spouse, especially at a relatively young age, and to be left to raise two boys all alone is an awful tragedy. In fact, that's enough to turn many people bitter against the Lord, cause them to walk away from the Lord. But then on top of that, to lose both of your sons, your only children, and to be left all alone in the world, that is unthinkable suffering. Oftentimes, Job is put forward as the the prime example of personal suffering in the Old Testament, right? Job lost everything. But Naomi is certainly his female counterpart. This poor woman lost her husband, lost her children, had no family, and is left in a foreign land. The New International Commentary on the Old Testament helps us understand her plight. And I quote, Naomi's fate is indeed bitter. As a widow, she lacks the provision and protection of a husband in a male-dominated ancient society. Further, her age and poverty effectively seal off three options normally open to a widow. In view of the passage of time implied in the story, her parents may be dead. If so, she would not be able to return to her father's house like an ordinary young widow. Remarriage seems improbable because she is probably beyond childbearing years. She cannot support herself by some trade because she has none. And besides, women simply did not do that in those days. Worse yet, she is an aged widow without children, the worst fate for an Israelite woman. Naomi is lost. With Sarah, Hannah, and Elizabeth, she suffers the painful shame of childlessness. Further, she faces her declining years with no children to care for her and no grandchildren to cheer her spirits, end quote. Now, for ancient Hebrew readers, when they get to the point that we're at right now, the stage is set for an epic drama. The fate of not just an Israelite woman, but an, an entire Israelite family hangs in the balance. This family, the family line of Elimelech, runs the risk of extinction, and there is no worse fate 
in Israel than for your family line to be cut off. And so the rest of the book of Ruth is going to answer this question, will God let that happen? Because if not, it's going to take a miracle to prevent it. Spoiler alert, God will not let it happen. He will restore this woman, this family, and this family line. And guess what? He'll even use a miracle to make it happen. And best of all, the family line that Naomi will now mother will far exceed anything that she could have ever asked or thought. But now I'm getting ahead of myself and I'm getting ahead of Naomi. Today up through verse five, Naomi is in the middle of the most intense storm of her whole life and there is no resolution in sight. This might be the same for some of you this morning. You're here at church right now and there are circumstances in your life currently that honestly are about as challenging as any circumstances you've ever faced. And you're looking at what's going on in your life and you just don't see how it could be resolved. Maybe that's not true for you personally, but I know as I continue to talk to more and more Christians about where we are as a nation right now, a lot of people feel those sorts of feelings about our country. It seems like things are so polarized, that things are so divided and so uh, torn apart right now that many people feel like, is there any conceivable way of how things could be patched back up? Could we ever be a unified nation and a peaceful place again? For many of us, it's hard to see a way forward. Well, family, here's the encouragement this morning. This woman, Naomi, did not see a way that things could possibly work out for her good, but they did. And in hindsight, she'd be able to look back and smile at God's unfathomable kindness to her that would last for time and eternity. You and I may not be able to see how things could possibly work out for our good, but by faith, we can trust that someday in hindsight, we'll be able to look back at this moment with a smile, not at the situation, but a smile at God's unfathomable kindness to you. Why is that? For the same reason as Naomi. As we'll learn, God ultimately provides a redeemer from Bethlehem for Naomi's family who restores their fortunes and provides for them from that day forward in church. I hardly even need to remind you, God has provided for us a redeemer from Bethlehem. His name is Jesus Christ and he restores our fortunes and provides for us forevermore. In John chapter six, Jesus, who was born in the house of bread, born in the city of Bethlehem, is called the bread of life. Here's what Jesus says in John 6, 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, through Jesus's death on the cross, those of us who put our faith in him have our sins removed, which means that we are able to now have a relationship with our father in heaven. We can be reconciled to him which is the place where ultimate satisfaction comes from. It comes from a relationship with God, the knowledge that your sins are all forgiven, the experience of God's presence in your life, and the knowledge that your eternity is secure because of Christ. That is where satisfaction comes from. 
And the person who receives Jesus by faith begins to experience that joy and that confidence and that hope and that satisfaction. And all of a sudden that hunger at the depth of your being, at the core of your soul, that thirst begins to be quenched. Augustine, that great church father, famously wrote in his confessions, you made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. I wonder as I look out at our beautiful church today, if there is anyone here who is restless. If that describes you today, I just want to end with this. I just want to say, there is rest to be had for you. And it's not out there. It's in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, the bread of life. Let's pray together. God, we are so thankful for this amazing reminder this morning of your faithfulness to your people. Lord, I love how the scriptures are so real and so raw. We are presented with this woman who the the scripture is not glossing over or sugarcoating her experience. She is in pain. She is in suffering. She is in grief and anguish. And Lord, that describes seasons of life that we all go through. And yet, Lord, from the story of the book of Ruth and from the greater story of the gospel of Jesus Christ that goes from one end of the Bible to the other end of the Bible, we're once again reminded that even when our circumstances are bleak, even when we are in seasons of suffering, even when we might feel that we have been forgotten, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, your word tells us that essentially you're even closer to us in our times of suffering. You tell us in your word that you draw near to the brokenhearted. And so Lord, even though at the level of our experience, we feel like you're so far, the reality is you are closer than ever. And so Lord, I pray for us as a church family that we would all be comforted by that reality today. That if we have personal suffering that we're enduring, or again, even as we look at a lot of the disillusionment that we might feel with the way the world is right now, Lord, we know that you will never, ever, ever forsake your church. You will never turn your back on one of your sons or daughters. And Lord, you promise and you guarantee and you have proven time and again in your word and time and again in the history of the church that you will ultimately work all things out for our good. So Lord, this morning, help us to rest in that. Help us to trust in you. Help us to wait in the house of bread, believing that you, Lord, will provide all that we ever need. We love you, Lord. We are so grateful for your unending love for us. We worship you. We praise you. We honor you today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.